Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. This episode, I'm joined by serial entrepreneur Nick Chang to discuss what you don't know about being a funded startup. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the Startup Rundown for Thursday, the 15th of February. Melbourne-based digital gift card platform Mentwell has announced they've generated $5.8 million in sales revenue within 18 months of launching. Led by Bootstrap solo founder Nikki Williams, Mentwell is Australia's first health and wellness gift card startup. Launched in November 2023, Mentwell gift cards allow recipients to access their own choice of mental health and wellness services including GPs, psychologists, dentists, and allied health. Metwell's aim is to have 60% of personal and business gifting occurring on the platform in 10 years, and we'll be watching and cheering them on. We normally advise skepticism and distance when dealing with pitch nights, but this one deserves an exception. Fishburners is hosting a LGBTQIA pitch night in collaboration with high-performance speaker Veronica Mason. According to Startup Daily, Mason was compelled to hold the event upon discovering that over 75% of queer founders chose to hide their identity from investors. The event hopes to be a fun and open space for queer founders to pitch their ideas freely and openly. It will also act as a fundraiser, with 25% of the ticket revenue being donated to Australia's LGBTQIA Education Foundation. The event is being hosted at the Sydney Startup Hub on the 16th of February. And next, an update on the Kiki Girls Only Club debacle that we covered a couple of episodes ago, with the startup and its backer Blackbird seeming to flip-flop back to a focus on subletting. Smart Company reports that the company's co-founder, Toby Thomas-Smith, announced via social media that subletting was going to remain a key focus of the Kiki platform, despite stating quite clearly back in January that it was not. Thomas-Smith also stated that he failed to communicate the true rationale behind the pivot, stating that 70% of Kiki's current user base is female. Thomas Smith went on to apologize to female founders and anyone else who may have been offended. I'm not sure if we're ready to accept Toby. In perfect timing, Blackbird released a blog post on the same day as Thomas Smith's apology, affirming its commitment to supporting gender diversity in startups. This, however, seems a little contrary to the stats as Blackbird came under scrutiny last year for funding 11 all-male founding teams in a row. Tech giants have escaped the clutches of EU anti-competition regulations this week as lawmakers have decided that services provided by Apple and Microsoft do not fall under the restrictions of the Digital Markets Act. The DMA imposes a set of interoperability requirements as well as other obligations upon companies deemed gatekeepers for particular services. According to TechCrunch, five months ago, Apple's iMessage, as well as Microsoft's browser and advertising services, were placed under review for these restrictions and were let off the hook on the 13th of February. The Commission's press release states that it will continue to monitor the services in question to determine if restrictions may become necessary, with Apple and Microsoft claiming that their services are insufficiently popular to be considered eligible for DMA requirements. 
I was going to close that bit with a sarcastic retort, but I think it's funny enough on its own. And finally, Elon Musk wants to put chips in our brains, and it turns out the Japanese want to put pig organs in our bodies. Japanese startup Poor MedTech announced this week that it has produced three cloned piglets that have organs that can be transplanted to humans with less risk of immune rejection, opening the door for future cross-species organ transplants. To create these genetic pigs in blankets, Poor MedTech imported gene-edited pig cells from U.S. biotech startup eGenesis in September and took their nuclei into egg cells, creating genetically modified embryos. They were then implanted into the uterus of a mother pig to produce clone piglets. Elsewhere, in porcine human organ exchanges, a separate team of Japanese researchers are planning to start a clinical study to temporarily transplant a pig's kidney into a human fetus with a severe kidney disease. I have so many questions and a raft of bacon jokes that I will spare you from for now. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. From the outside, achieving investment in your startup feels like a peak achievement. But the reality is it's the start of a much deeper climb that has its upsides and its downs. Someone who knows this journey very well is Nick Chang, who has founded and successfully exited more than one company, and he's here to help us shed some light on what you might know about being funded. Nick, welcome to The Bootstrap. Thank you, Scotty. Happy to be here. I'm glad you're here too. So today we are talking about what founders don't know about what it's like to be funded. And I thought you would be a great person to talk to about that because you've been through it more than once. Tell us a little bit about your background and your journey in that space. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been funded about three times, once in Taiwan and twice in in Australia. I've had a few kind of like side projects that have gone through funding before too, uh, though not at that kind of institutional VC level. Beautiful. And you've had two exits? Is that- two exits, yeah. One, one Taiwan and one over here. Oh, beautiful. Fantastic. Tell me, first and foremost, what was that experience like the first time that you went through it? What did you learn from that? Yeah, yeah. So look, I think the first one was when I was very, very young. It was in Taiwan. The I would say the, the industry, the environment, everything about it was was very different from what it was now. So um, I'll actually talk about, I think it's more relevant to talk about the second time or the first time here in Australia, um, Yeah, which was probably back in 20, 2016 when we actually had funds landed. What happened back then was me and my co-founder, we were both at a business called Zomato, um, like a food discovery online bookings platform that aren't isn't in Australia anymore. We had met there then decided that, hey, we've done pretty well here. We should go off on our own and, and try to do it ourselves, right? And we were very lucky at the time. We had both come from the background of a successful Zomato expansion. Zomato is a huge brand. We did a lot of marketing back back then. So, so it was pretty much everyone knew about it when we mentioned, hey, like we were the guys who, who expanded Zomato in Australia to, to where it is today, right? And off of that, and this is, I, I want to very clearly state that this is not the usual case, but off of almost just that credibility and that experience, we were able to raise pre-product, pre-website. I think we only had mock-ups when we landed that first 500K or so in seed in, in May 2016. You just hit right away, I think, on something that is not well understood in the space in Australia is that profile 
makes a huge difference. People believe in their idea. They believe it's fantastic. They might even have the evidence to show that, but track record for investors definitely makes yeah, a difference. A- absolutely. More so than, than anyone else. I mean, I moved to Australia in 2015, March 2015. So then I had pretty much no, besides Zomato, right? I didn't have a history in Australia, right? Zomato was the first Australian company that I worked at. I had only lived there, lived here um, for about a year a year and two months at that time when we got funded. So the only thing they had to see on me really was my Zomato track record, right? And because it was such a success, I would say, at that time at least, right? It was essentially enough for them at the time. Another big part of that that journey or that that initial journey was the the business that we started, the startup that we that we did, that me and my co-founder did, was almost a exact replica in terms of business model, go-to-market, et cetera, to Zomato. Right. So we were basically saying to investors, hey, we're doing exactly what we did as a motto, right? Which we did successfully within a year. We're just going to take exactly what we did there and apply it to a new industry. Right. And so that, that definitely helped that, those conversations. What, what was the most unexpected thing for you along the way in, in having that funding and the responsibilities that come with it? Honestly, the most unexpected thing was that we got money before we even had a product. That was, that was the most unexpected thing, right? I remember pitching at an office in South Yara and then we had a pitch deck and then they were asking to see product. And then we just brought up just some web mock-ups of, of what our future product would look like, right? And that was the most unexpected, right? But look, overall, the journey was, it's, it's essentially a sales slog. Right. It's your what you're essentially trying to do is you're trying to sell your idea for a large amount of money and then not even sell the whole thing. Um, so there's really only a few select yeah. type of people who would buy into something like that. Right. So it's, it's just about mm. getting out there, meeting as many people as you can and then seeing where it goes from there. Right. From the moment that you think you're going to get money right? Maybe someone has given you like a verbal yes, or like a, a very strong verbal indication of, of yes, we're going to invest. It probably still takes another six months from there. Yeah. So all up, even getting to that verbal yes, that's maybe another six months, like six months to, yeah. Uh, depending on, there's a lot of other factors, but rule of thumb, what I tell people is six months, right? At least. And if you were talking to somebody today, what optimism would you give them about raising off a a pitch deck of a few screenshots. I would say it's it's unlikely now. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. I want to put a big asterisk there. It's like this is not normal. This is what we're trying to help people yeah. understand. Absolutely. Doesn't really happen yeah. much. <laughs> Again, yeah, very, very much like back then it was already unexpected slash unheard of. Today, after you know, COVID, after kind of like the downturn of the of the entire like VC sector and the and the investments. I would say it is close to impossible unless you were someone with like a extreme global track record, right? Like, for example, I, I wouldn't think that yeah. Elon Musk or someone like that would, I think he could probably still raise off of a pitch deck. But if you're not Elon Musk, it's probably pretty close to impossible. For sure. Yeah. It is one of those misconceptions that I guess the ease of a raise that people I find can spend a lot of time being mm-hmm. caught up in either assuming that, well, let's do all this work. And then when we're ready, the money will just come. come. Or like I've had people recently show me, like we've got three Figma 
screens do you think we need to do more before we try and raise funds? And in this instance, where it was a B2C product, I was like, yeah, you're going to have to make it and make money from it to show somebody that, that you've got traction before uh, anyone will give you money for this. And I think that's quite the answer that they were looking yeah, for. Yeah, and I think you've hit it spot on, right? I think traction is is so, so important, right? And a lot, of, a lot of people do miss that or think that, or I guess sometimes fall into the illusion that what they have is already considered traction. Well, let's talk about that. I guess in terms of when people say traction, because one thing that I encounter quite a bit is people who, VCs, we know that they've got to kiss 10,000 frogs to find one prince but they don't tell the other 9,999 that they're the frogs. But they say, that looks interesting. Come back when you've got some traction. People will really take that to heart and sometimes make bad decisions on the back of that, thinking it's affirmation. So what what does traction look like? Obviously, it's not a universal piece, but for somebody who's bootstrapping a software product, what is traction going to look like that's actually going to be appealing to an investor. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And, and just like you said, right, I think I want to put an asterisk here is that traction can look very, very different for different businesses. For example, if you're a like some kind of med tech product, right, where you're working with hospitals, really like getting getting one or two or three hospitals to work with you, right, is is pretty good, right? Because um, those there, there's a lot of regulations, a lot of like due diligence done in those type of industries. Yeah. But then if we're talking about consumer tech, I think, you know, traction really means finding an irregular amount of people who are willing to pay for your service, right? And I, and I use the word irregular because regular means your friends and family. I can go to my <laughs> friends and family. Maybe there's, I don't know, 20... 30 people and I go, Hey, this is, this is what I want to do. And if they all say, yes, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to pay, I, I would love to pay you for that. And and I go, yay, well, there's my traction. Well, well not really. Right. Um, that's, that's your regular, that's your, your, the regular amount of people, right. Um, we're talking about irregular and whatever irregular means for, for that startup, that industry, that product, right. It, it can mean different things. Right. But I think that's really what it is. You need to find an irregular amount of people who want to pay for your product, right. Who say, Hey, I want that. It solves a problem. Right. Uh, and I will pay money to you for it. If we think about those more consumer or software as a service pieces where it's going to take more than three hospitals if I've got a B2B SaaS product. Where is that line between I've spent too much money, I've put too much into this, so now it doesn't look fundable or it looks too undercooked Mm. to be fundable? Yeah, yeah. Again, it's uh, very different, right? But kind of the rule of thumb that I use personally when I try to I guess, test out my ideas. And this is something that I tell a lot of my other people that I work with, people that I advise to is um, basically like put in a few hundred dollars into Facebook ads, Google ads, maybe Instagram ads, right? Depending on what type of consumer tech it is, right? And see your response. If it's any good, like obviously there's a variation and difference of, of, of quality in terms of like the ad that you're using the ad type, the the images, whether it's video, the copy, etc. There's definitely a, uh, there's a huge there's a whole industry um, and science behind, I guess, maximizing conversion of ads, right? But but in general, right? Like if you know your product, if you know your industry, you'll be able to put out a, a create an ad that that will at least somewhat speak to what what you what you're trying to do. I think the line is there, right? Where 
if you spend a couple of hundred dollars, even as like an in, because I mean, if you're, if you can't afford to spend a few hundred dollars to try to validate your idea, then, then you probably should not be working on it. Right. Yeah. So then if you, if you just spend a few hundred dollars and, and see the response that you kind of, you get, right. And then from there, if you get any kind of response, you start interviewing those people, right. You start, Hey, can we just meet on zoom? Right. Can I ask you a few questions? And then you kind of slowly build from there. The step from, bootstrapping or, or not spending any money to then spending money, even if it's a few hundred dollars, it's actually quite a large gap for a lot of people. I, I find that there are people that are so cautious with it. Like, I really don't want to put any money into this until I've got some validation, but trying to work out what that is, taking that next step. And then the flip side where some people where they have enough money to be dangerous to themselves to pay to build something and keep building it and keep adding features the the time where they think right we need investment now the pitch is basically we've run out of money yeah which is not 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 a great one trying to find that that balance is very tricky and look i think when i hear about stories like that or when i meet people who who tell me about like that they have these types of problems i actually get quite angry almost I'm not not angry at the at the founders, right? But but angry at the the industry or the people who are preying on these yeah. people to go, hey, you know, give me money and I'll build it the way you want, right? And except then it becomes original deadline one month becomes two months becomes three months. An original scope becomes scope creep, right? Original five k costs then goes ten, fifteen, twenty. I, I think that it, it is a combination of. Obviously, our people's own like confirmation bias and assumptions, and and one thing that I find is a bit of a common thread is people that maybe they've come out of a certain industry or they've experienced a problem, they come up with an idea that solves for them and make an assumption that everybody else in the same boat will want that, and that's never true, yeah. right? Like it's, that's it's never true. Tricky place to be in where you actually have to unlearn some things. We're working with a client at Product Bus at the moment who's a very, very experienced developer who has very successfully commercialized a product in one industry and then jumped into another industry pretty blind. Mm-hmm. You know, they said, I'm, I've just got to submit to this process right now because I know that I don't know what I'm doing in this space. To me, that's really powerful because that is... Like, yeah, neither do we. We, we. we don't know. We've got to learn. And we can do that in that fail fast methodology where the cost of failing is pretty minimal because you're like, maybe this. Here's how we'll test it. No. Okay. It's not that way I've put my wealth. That's what I find upsetting is when you find people where, and I know I've said this before on this podcast, but the, the advice, uh, regardless of scale, the methodology is the same. It's the scale at which you do it. And I think what often happens is people who are new to this or bootstrapping listen to the podcast, they go to the events, all, all of the advice is like, yeah, just build an MVP, just ship it, see what happens. And you can afford to put money into that when you're funded, throw it against the wall and see if it doesn't stick. But when people listen to that and then they get that advice from your incubators and that sort of thing as well. No, you are never going to get funded through this process. But rather than somebody saying, look, you need to bootstrap this, 
they'll be like, oh yeah, great. Just ship something quickly. Let's get it out there. See what happens. Get some traction and then come back. I have seen people genuinely put their long-term financial well-being at risk through over-investing in an idea that cannot be commercialized in the form that they envision it in. Ultimately, they are adults and they're responsible for the choices that they make. But it really upsets me that we don't have that just kind of greater level of honesty in this space. And I talk about it as that difference between nice and kind. And and some of this is Australian culture. And some of it is, I think, you know, that kind of VC, they hedge their bets, right? Like, yeah, so they're not going to say, yeah, this is rubbish because if you fluke it, then they'll gladly take a clip of it, right? That's the whole reason that, you know, the stuff that I'm doing exists is it is like, hey, there's, it's, I don't, some of it I don't think is predatory. I think it's just unintentional consequences because it's and not being explicit enough about the game that people are playing almost argue that that it is predatory though i mean predatory is a a strong word right but i I think it goes a little bit beyond unintended consequences let's put it that way i mean it's not everyone right but in general institutional funding know what their business model is know what game they're oh you're right of course of course okay damn it you want to believe the best in people, <laughs> yeah. but the um, but you know I think there are a lot of people that work in the startup ecosystem, you know, in that space that don't necessarily understand. And this is where really it, it is on the founder or prospective founder to educate themselves yeah. about who the players are. And you know when I look at I, there was something a little while ago, someone running a session at a conference on founder well being, mm. and then I looked at who this person was, and they're a VC who's LinkedIn, it's like past employers, KPMG, NAB. You know, <laughs> like, so what do you, so I'm sorry, what do you know about founder well-being? That is like me telling women how to manage childbirth, right? Like it's just not, you know, it's, it's insulting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, but, but we allow that all the time. I think it, ha- it does take some people to kind of try as politely as possible to call it out because some of it is just really, it's a machine. And and VC is a volume game. They've got to pump as many people through, you know, as many meetings as they can to get through kissing all those frogs. Right. And so it's a, it is um, very tricky. So if you were talking to somebody who was right at the beginning, considering bootstrapping or seeking funding or an idea, like what is, what's the advice that you give about how to get started and how to make decisions in that space. Yeah, well, look, I think the first thing is is what you said earlier, right? It's, which is to figure out whether or not institutional funding is the way to go, right? And I'm using the, the term institutional because it's not institutional would then be an umbrella term for, for VCs, for and then also for family offices or, and for other types of uh, investment, right? Yeah. I guess angel investing is a little bit outside of institutional because you know I guess by by terminology an angel is just by themselves, right? They're an individual, not not institutional. Yeah. So I think the first step is then to really figure out if it's if it's for them, right? There's a lot a lot of additional terms, right? Um, some would all, almost call them disadvantages to go with institutional funding. Right. So, for example, one thing that I, I would almost put money on that a lot of uh, people who are first starting this journey don't know is that more often than not, right, I think it's maybe become slightly less 
prevalent, but more often than not, VC funding will come with a term called founder vesting. And founder vesting is essentially where the VC says, you know, it's, yes, it's your business. You're the one who started it. You have, let's say, 100% of the shares if, if, you're a sole co- uh, if you're a sole founder, right? But then they'll say, now that we've put money into you, you then have to vest your own shares in your own company. Right. It's usually on a pretty standard uh, schedule, four years, one year cliff, uh, et cetera. Right. Um, but if you think about that, when I first found out about that, I was floored. I was like, how, why would I do this? Like, that's, that's absolutely crazy. Like, why would I vest in the company that I started, that I'm a director of, <laughs> that I own the shares of already? Right. For, yeah. And look, I mean, I get it from their end, right? They have to make sure that the founder or the founders don't, don't take the money and then just run off or, or, or waste it away. I get it. Right. It's a bit of security, safety, collateral um, on their side. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you really have to then ask yourself as a founder, is that something I am willing to do? Am I willing to, to work on this business and get vested in my own business for? four years, right? Then on top of that, if you're successful in, let's say, your C round, A round, and then you go to your next round, what's very likely to happen again is that the new investors for your A, B, C round, or whoever enters new, would then want to do it again. So they'll vest you on a new new schedule again, right? So then you're kind of locked in, right? A lot of people don't know that. Uh, yeah, so I think the first step, probably the most important step is, and maybe the only step, is to figure out if that's for you. If it is, Right. Then you just start the sales process. Ultimately, it is a sales process. You find your leads, you find who you want to speak to, right? And then you start you start reaching out and you start speaking to them. But I think the most important step is that first step and figuring out if it is for you, right? And for some people, it is. For some people, it isn't. I think some of it really depends also on where you are financially and how much of a gamble you can afford to take. Absolutely. If you are in a position where you need whatever you're building to fund your life now, then working on a model that builds by revenue makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I think one of the things that because of where a lot of the content and events come from in this space is, you know, we, we, people turn up their nose at a lifestyle business. And, but there are yeah. privately held companies in Australia that make a shit ton of money yeah, yeah. where people live very nicely. You know, like it's not a, because one thing that I'm often puzzled by when people are like, desperately trying to raise or complaining about not being able to raise is I'm like, well, what do you need this for? Like you, you have got customers, you mightn't grow as fast, but if you can grow it sustainably and retain ownership while you're doing that, that is the most logical piece. Obviously, when we think about things like, you know, in the, the medical space, in some of the you know, kind of climate tech spaces, there are things that require funding to be built unless you're you know, independently wealthy where you could just make spaceships out of your own pocket. That's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. But when you're talking about something that is an online marketplace, it's it is a, yeah, yeah. You, have, you actually have to demonstrate that that can make money before anyone will be interested in multiplying their money through that anyway. That's not, you know, it's not a charity. So it's that piece of, and I think the answer to one reason why people then have to raise is that a lot of businesses, and particularly I see this in SaaS, they don't plan well enough to scale. And so they have to 
that they scale by getting a bloated yeah, headcount. Yeah, yeah. And I've been in a business that really was in that in that space where I think up until a point, it had been a really financially strong, good business for the founders. And then they exploded in a niche. Yeah. And because it had been built on more of a consulting firm model, which is not about efficiencies. It's about what can we build a client for? Yeah. And then they started to bring in, like I was the first product person and I was like, oh my gosh, why are people engraving numbers on stone tablets? Like what is happening? <laughs> and they're like, and I was like, but you know, that takes so long. And they're like, yeah, but we build a client for that time. And when the, the market that they went into was not a billable hours you know, market. It was a fixed price, show me the value market. And to scale, they just hired a shit ton of people yeah, yeah. and then got to a point where they were like, oh, so now th- in order to continue to grow, they got themselves in this place where they had to get investment. Yeah. I mean, it was no longer, lo- no longer a choice. And I think that's a pathway that um, many people don't realize that they're on. Yeah, yeah. There's been a very much of a glamour, right, since, you know, Facebook came out. Over you know two decades ago, right, Ben? I think maybe recently it's kind of died down just a bit, but but that's pretty recent, right? Maybe in the past two or three years, but we still have you know shows on Netflix coming out about about startups, right? About I think there was one last year on Spotify. I think there's one coming out on Theranos, right? Um, so it's still very glamorous, right? But but honestly, like right now, if you gave me on a silver platter a lifestyle business that makes X amount, and then a like a funded business that doesn't that doesn't make that, but then has in is is worth like I don't know billion dollars. I would honestly just pick the lifestyle business, right? Um, yeah, it's 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 like a, a hands down decision for me. Yeah, if you watch the shows to the end, they're never happy anyway. <laughs> yeah, sometimes yeah. they end up in jail. But I think I don't know if the we this obsession with valuation and with the unicorn valuation, is that something that current economic state is going to pop that bubble or are we like, why yeah. are we so the focused on the that? bubble has been like talked about for 10 years ago, at least. And honestly, I don't think it will. Yeah. For lack of a better term pop. Right. Because I think that I think in this space, there's, there's just too much. Yeah. There's just too much um, new things going on such like new innovative things oh. in terms of app, like, like chat yeah. like a generative ai is such uh in its early infant stages right and then yes it's, it's renewed like maybe if the bubble was about to be burst well it's just put on like several layers of other bubbles so that like you know as long as like, <laughs> there's new bubbles <laughs> essentially and i'm sure in, like in a decade there's going to be another thing right oh yeah, no, I get that. I grew up in the States and as I've come to terms with the reality of capitalism, understanding that I grew up in this, like this is a, the land of opportunity. Anyone can make anything that they wanted themselves. So therefore, if you do achieve that, you should be able to keep it. And if you don't, well, that's a shame, but no one else should have to pay for it. And over the last however many years of coming to Australia and seeing a different model, not that capitalism isn't a shadow here but it's not our kind of core philosophy where you just realize oh actually that structure is it's created to ensure that the money stays where it is and the people that have the money multiply their money yeah and you know and behind the scenes of that sort of rhetoric is a lot of structure and urban development and planning and regulation that goes into 
keeping other populations from being able to really amass generational yeah, wealth. And so that, that's the reality is that the more people have, the more capacity that they have to make more. And understanding that that's the VC piece of that is that as a founder entering into that space, the likelihood that you become the richest off your idea is very yeah. low. I have witnessed this people that I've worked for where it's gone from an amazing idea that, you know, value driven and something you feel proud being a part of to something that they get cast aside yeah. from, or they're, they're sitting waiting you know, a couple of people with much longer vesting terms than what you've just described, where I think partly because of that trickle yeah. effect of the, the number of rounds yeah, and it's yeah. then like, I'm, you know, I'm stuck here for 13 years to get my yeah. money out of it. That's and crazy. Like, that's 13 years. Miserable. Yeah. yeah well, that's an extreme case, but yeah, yeah, yeah. lots of, yeah. um, bad decisions and good advice ignored <laughs> in that instance, but you know, like it, it happens and it's not the nirvana that you think it is. So w- last question, you know, one thing that I always ask people and we kind of touched, talked about this a little bit before, but if you were only able to give a founder one piece of advice about how to get started, validate a bit earlier than even thinking about funding, what would that be? What's the starting point? Someone says to you, I've got an idea that I reckon could be, could be something What's the one or the first thing that you would advise them to do? Good question. Hard question. Without thinking too much about it, my one piece of advice would be, great. Speak to as many people as you can about it. Everyone and anyone, right? Do not hold back. Yeah, that would, that would, be, that would be my advice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think particularly people that are in the space that you think would want this. Because, you know, it's that, like I said before, the, the family and friends um, spaces, of course, your mom's going to tell you that she loves your idea yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you're around a dinner table after a beer. Everything sounds great. And you've got no skin in the game because it's not impacting you. Like, I'm not really going to buy this. So I'm like, great, Nick, that sounds amazing. Go for it. Absolutely. The world of cat litter is ready to be democratized. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> go talk to people that you think want this and work out whether they do or not. Maybe it's a completely different problem or maybe your idea is great, but it's a completely different group of people that actually would benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah. And and the only way to find out about that is by talking to people who then can, you know, help you, you know, expand on um, your idea or, or help you brainstorm, right? That's, that's literally the only way. Yeah. Fantastic. Nick, we could talk forever. We'll have to have you back, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Scotty. You can follow Nick Chang on LinkedIn and check our show notes for more details. And that's it for the bootstrap for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And of course, we would love a positive rating and review to help others find our program. Even better, share the show with a friend or anyone really. Go door to door if you feel so moved. Maybe even offer a complimentary set of pig organs. We're not proud. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. We're on Instagram and Facebook, and our YouTube channel is launching soon, really. The Product Bus is also on most platforms, and you can interact with the Bootstrap post there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We're edited by Sammy Perryman. Original sound design by Rob Clark. Our executive producers are Tiffany Ashdown and me for Highland Road. If you are an early stage founder looking for resource and practical help, 
check out theproductbus.com and get in touch. We are 100% brain, chip, and pig organ free.